Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. A million species are a threat of extinction. That was just one of the findings of the UN Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. It issued its global assessment report this morning in Paris. The report is over a thousand pages long. It's put together by more than 500 biodiversity experts. We're going to hear an excerpt from the statement by Bob Watson at the release of the report. Robert Watson is the panel chair and professor of environmental sciences in Britain who uh, oversaw the report. And this is Bob at the release of the report this morning on mass extinction in Paris. The evidence in this report shows that biodiversity is not only an environmental issue, but it's an economic issue, a development, security, social, ethical and moral issue. Biodiversity has incredible economic value. It's central to development through, through, through food, water, and energy security. It's a security issue insofar as the loss of natural resources, especially in poor developing countries, can lead to conflict. It's a moral issue. We should not destroy nature. And it's an ethical issue because the loss of biodiversity hurts the poorest of people, further exacerbating an already inequitable world. Unless we act now to reduce the loss of biodiversity, we will undermine human well-being for current and future generations. We need to slow down the loss and degradation of our natural habitats, our forests, our wetlands, our grasslands, our coral reefs. And along with this, we need to slow down the extinction of species from insects to large charismatic species, as well, of course, plants. The failure to meet many of the Aichi targets, as you just heard, in most countries means we need actions. We don't need targets without actions. A target without a set of specified actions is meaningless. The meeting in China next year will be a critical milestone to see if there is the political will to take the evidence gathered in this report to start to implement the transformative changes we need to conserve and sustainably use biodiversity. That was Robert Watson this morning at the release of the UN report on mass extinction. Robertson, uh, Watson was the chair of the Global Assessment Report released this morning. With me now is Andrew Wetzler. He is the Deputy Chief Program Officer and Managing Director of the Nature Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Uh, what do you? This report is so all-encompassing and so overwhelming. How do you think this is going to land with people? What should they get out of it? Well, I hope it's a real wake-up call for people. Um, and I think the bottom line of the report is we need to start taking better care of nature or it's going to stop taking care of us. And the thing that gives me hope about the report is that although the problems can seem overwhelming, the solutions are not. We know exactly what to do to fix this problem. The question is, as the introductory um, told us, is are we going to have the political will to do it? You know, it was interesting in the BBC report that preceded the program, uh, there was the uh, piece about the, the global assessment report, and then there was the Arctic uh, piece at the end where the mm-hmm. Arctic nations were arguing about what was essentially the resources in the Arctic, and they, they are going to cut them up and use them like they have used all the other resources on the planet. We'd, we aren't learning lessons fast here. You know, it's ironic, isn't it? The Arctic is warming twice as fast as any other place on Earth. 
and it's where some of our most vulnerable species live. And that's exactly why we need, in places like the ocean, because the Arctic is mostly ocean, a series of marine protected areas that will protect 30% of the oceans by 2030. Um, There's actually a negotiation right now for a UN treaty that would do just that on the high seas. So those are the kind of basic solutions we need to implement. Now, and this is something that's part of the uh, UN Convention on Biological Diversity? The report itself is part of a is part of a UN panel, which is empowered right. specifically to produce this report. The UN Convention on Biological Diversity is meeting next year in China, and that's the treaty that almost every country belongs to that actually sets targets for how much protected areas of land and water we need to achieve. So when uh, Bob Watson is talking there about setting a target of 30% land and oceans protected by 2030, you would need actions. He, he wants actions to to follow that, not just to make more targets. That's right. Right now, the targets are 10% of marine areas and 17% of lands. We haven't met them. Uh, And the science is telling us we need 30% to even have a fighting chance. But as Bob Watson said, we have to have real targets that result in real protections. Um, One of the interesting things that um, has been talked about is that we don't realize how bad mass extinction is because we only see what's around us. And what's, what around us seems maybe a little worse, but not so much worse. Um, but really, there are things that are failing right here in Chicago, right here in the Midwest, right here in our Great Lakes that, that um, we've got to, to do our best to, to counteract. Yeah, it's really, extinction can be a real silent crisis, but Um, I would ask anybody who's listening to this to think about the number of insects that they see around the greater Chicago area. I know that when I first moved to Chicago, the number of um, mayflies that I'd see, not mayflies, the number of June bugs that I'd see, of fireflies, um, was so much more than I see now. The number of insects that would hit the windshield of my car driving down the highway was so much more 10 or 15 years ago than it is now. And we know the number of migratory butterflies like monarchs has dropped precipitously. Those are the kind of everyday examples that people... They should tell people if they pay attention about how great and deep this crisis really is. It is overwhelming, though, to change all our systems. People, you know, if you wanted to get more insects, you would not have so many lawns and you would do (laughs) something different. But people really like their lawns and they don't want to change. To change a system is tough stuff. Uh, Changing systems can be tough, but the solutions that we have are actually pretty simple. We, we know how to farm with using less fertilizers and less pesticides, and that's the primary driving force when it comes to insect declines. Um, lots of people in my neighborhood in Oak Park, Illinois, have native grasses and flowers planted in their front yard instead of lawns, and they're beautiful looking. It's little changes that we can all make um, on an individual level, but also larger, relatively straightforward changes that we can make in a systems level and that are well within what we know how to do within our existing systems that can make a difference. When it comes to something like agriculture, though, that's a gigantic system uh, that has a lot of subsidies involved in it. And Mm -hmm. and Bob Watson was talking about this at the, at the release that the agriculture and the fossil fuel industry are widely subsidized by the governments involved and, Uh, pulling, yanking those subsidies out. It's a very political act. It's changing a big system. And um, I I don't think a lot of people know know what, have the imagination to change it into something else. Well, you're right that it's a political act. And there's always going to be incumbent interests like 
pesticide corporations um, that are going to fight any change. But just to take a more specific example, if farmers in the Midwest shift to using cover crops for their commodity crops, things like corn and soybeans, we know that that will dramatically reduce pesticide use, dramatically reduce fertilizer use, improve the health of soil, and save farmers money. So it's more of a question of just putting in programs to let farmers make that switch and to educate them about it, rather than fighting back the resistance of the uh, big pesticide companies. All right. I mean, but, but they liked using the big pesticide things because it's simpler, right? I mean, th- those things are uh, you just spray and go. Well, and because it's subsidized by the government and because we have a regulatory system in Washington that doesn't really communicate to the public the real public human health and ecosystem costs of our overuse of pesticides. Um You know, we've seen some interesting developments uh, with things like Extinction Rebellion, people actually talking about extinction, mass extinction as an issue. Do you, um, are you optimistic about that kind of conversation taking place? I am optimistic about it. I think that we're seeing a real shift in the way people view their obligations to nature and a real awakening of consciousness about the idea that the wildlife around us that we take for granted, everything from insects to pollinators to birds to small mammals are going to disappear unless we do something. And we owe them something. We owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our children, but we owe it to them. And so in a lot of ways, this report is, um, uh, is grim, but it also is very hopeful because of the kind of attention it's getting. And the prescription was in part to take better care and uh, enrich the protected spaces we have and expand them so we can uh, get out there and, you know, take better care of what we've got uh, right off the bat. That's right. The single most important thing that we could do to preserve nature um, is obviously not to curl up into a ball. It's to protect areas. If we can protect areas in the ocean, if we can protect areas on land, and make sure that they're connected so that animals can go from one area to another as they migrate in response to climate, we can do a tremendous amount to protect nature. And it's nature that protects us by providing us with food, by controlling flooding, by regulating our climate. And I think one of the most uh, shocking statistics that's been bouncing around out of of the report is that 93% of fish fish stocks are overfished, and people are talking about... um, you know, widespread extinction in the oceans in a different way now. You're right. But one of the most hopeful things, the way I look at it is we know how to fish sustainably. The United States, in fact, through a law called the Magnus and Stevens Act, has made huge strides in the last 20 years in improving the status of our fish stocks in the United States. Those lessons, we need to defend that law. It's under attack by the Trump administration. But those lessons can be exported to other countries. So as I said, we know how to fish well. We know how to fish sustainably. The question is, will we do it before it's too late? Andrew Wetzler is Deputy Chief Program Officer and Managing Director of the Nature Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks a lot, Andrew, for joining us and talking a bit about the UN Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services and their big global assessment report issued this morning in Paris, over a thousand pages long, talking about um, a million species being a threat of extinction. Thanks a lot for joining us, Robert. Thanks for having me.
up after the break, we'll talk about human rights and Human Rights Watch. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last week, Worldview met with a group of Chicago-based lawyers, social workers, and psychologists who work with survivors of sexual violence. They watched scenes from a documentary called The Prosecutors about the people who seek justice for victims of rape in conflict areas. Later, you'll hear a scene from a Congolese courtroom. But first, listen to this Bosnian prosecutor contemplating the judicial process. I'm not under the illusion that all the cases of war crimes in Bosnia and Herzegovina will be resolved. They will not be finalized because many victims will die. Moreover, many victims do not want to testify. They withheld this information from their parents, brothers, sisters, simply because they do not want to remember this trauma. However, the more people we take to court, the more people are brought to justice, and the closer we get to reconciliation. It's different, but there are a lot of um, threads that I think are really similar with um, Chicago torture justice memorials um, and the reparations ordinance that came down from city council in 2015. And to me, this is, this is accountability to me and memorialization that I think is really, really powerful. And I think has a longer vision. Um, so it was 5.5 million in reparations to dozens of victims, free city college tuition for victims and their families, and a number of other things. And it was the city acknowledging literally human rights violations. Um, and it wasn't just taking, plucking certain John Burge in particular and saying this person, and we're gonna do this thing to this person. It was the city acknowledging systemic violence under its watch, right? State violence. And I think that that's, that's what's happening here, right? It may be certain soldiers, but it's endemic of state violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's something that I really wrestle with. When we watched the film, my boyfriend was in the room, and, uh, and he's a, a, a black male from Inglewood. And when he was taking a look at sort of the trials and how um, it seemed that the lower level soldiers were held accountable, In the question of whether the defendant is guilty of the war crime of pillage, the court with a majority of its members answers yes. And generals are not held accountable. In the question of whether the defendant is guilty of the war crime of rape, with a majority of its members, the court answers no. And he was just like, well, 
that's what happens here. Like, <laughs> this happens all the time. And so, I don't know, I think just having, um, so that's just an example, but I think of just having different perspectives and, and different um, different perspectives in the room, especially when you, you think about the audiences and you're trying to draw parallels um, to, to the concepts in this film that I think is very important. Yeah, and I do think kind of building off of that and some of the earlier conversations that we have, I do think it's also important to recognize that even though some of these steps might be the first time that some of these crimes are recognized in some of these places, that doesn't necessarily mean that prosecuting in a formal court system always works or that it works in the United States or that it works in other places or that that's always the answer or that it's the only answer. You know, it's like even though in the film we're recognizing that it's happening in these countries and might be happening for the first time, which could be very helpful in that context for some people, that doesn't mean it's the be all end all. And that definitely doesn't say anything about how the system in the United States works. Mm-hmm. Those were the voices of Chicago-based social workers Sophia Sarantakos, Andrea Porter, and attorney Julia Waterhouse reacting to scenes from the film The Prosecutors. There will be a screening of the film next Monday at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Worldview's Steve Bynum will moderate the conversation. The prosecutor's director, Leslie Thomas, will be there, along with other stakeholders in the realm of conflict-related sexual violence. That's Monday at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Let's talk about children's rights with Joe Becker. She's advocacy director of the Children's Rights Division for Human Rights Watch. In 2017, she wrote a book, Campaigning for Children, Strategies for Advancing Children's Rights. Nice to meet you, Joe Becker. Great to be here, Jerome. I wanted to talk, first of all, about ISIS and children and the war in Iraq and Syria. Uh, You were there in November and looked into the situation. I don't think most people think of an ISIS fighter as a child. We think of them as a great big terrorizing menace. Um, But there were a bunch that were children, apparently. Yeah. So ISIS recruited thousands of children as part of its campaign to create a caliphate in Iraq and Syria. In some cases, they would recruit children by force. But in other cases, children would join because they were influenced by family members or they were just looking for a source of income or they were influenced by their their friends. Of course, ISIS has become very adept at recruiting online. They use the Internet, Facebook, Twitter, to target children in other countries. So there are thousands of children who actually cross borders to join ISIS. But now that ISIS has been largely defeated, what we're seeing is a campaign of revenge against all ISIS fighters. And particularly in Iraq, the government is not really distinguishing between head commanders who were really in charge of atrocities versus children who played low-level, minimal, or even no role with the group. What happens to these children? Can you give us an example? Yeah. I was in northern Iraq for part of November, where I interviewed several dozen children who had been picked up by Iraqi authorities for suspected involvement with ISIS. 
What's happened is the Iraqi authorities have wanted lists that literally have tens of thousands of names on them. And oftentimes the names come from villagers who have been coming from ISIS villages. And they might say, you know, oh, I saw Jerome with Ahmed, and we know that Ahmed is ISIS, so therefore Jerome must be ISIS too. Or people who are on the list because members of their family were affiliated with ISIS. So what happens is a child will cross a checkpoint, a boy, and he gets picked up by authorities who look at their list and they say, oh, you're on my list. You must be, you know, ISIS. They turn him over to interrogators who will often torture the child until they produce a confession. Children told us that the interrogators would sometimes say, it doesn't matter if you are ISIS or not. You have to confess. Everyone must confess. I can understand that, you know, the ISIS trials are not necessarily a place where people are getting their full rights. If you think somebody is ISIS, they're running them through, Mm -hmm. whether they're grown up or or children or whoever. And they're prosecuting everyone simply for membership in ISIS. They're not looking at what they did, whether they committed crimes or atrocities, but simply whether they were part of the group or not. Let me give you one example. I interviewed one boy who was, he was a 14-year-old schoolboy when ISIS came to Mosul, where he lived with his family. Shortly after ISIS came to town, his school shut down. He had nothing to do, so he started looking for work. ISIS was offering $50 a month for cooks. He took a job with ISIS as a cook. He said he never wanted to be a fighter. He had no interest. But then when Mosul was retaken, he was picked up and taken to detention and eventually prosecuted as a terrorist for working for a short period as a cook. I can't imagine that people prosecuted for being in ISIS are getting light sentences or slaps on the wrist. Children are getting sentences of up to 15 years for involvement that may only be a few days of training or, as I said, working in a low-level position like a cook or a driver. In other countries, I've done work on child soldiers for many years, and in a traditional conflict, it's accepted that children who are recruited by armed groups are victims and that they've been exploited. And what they really need is rehabilitation and help reintegrating into society. They need help going back to school or getting jobs. But what we're seeing today is anytime a so-called terrorist group is involved, now children are suddenly being you know, thrown into prison, convicted as terrorists, and it ruins their lives. Well, who was in charge of the rehabilitation efforts? It seemed like uh, several countries in West Africa were doing it with the United Nations at one time. Is there any United Nations in Iraq that would jump in there and kind of run a program? Exactly. UNICEF, for example, runs rehabilitation programs in many conflicts around the world. South Sudan, the Central African Republic, Democratic Republic of Congo. There are NGOs like Save the Children, for example, or War Child, who run programs as well. But they can only run the programs if the government has taken a policy decision that this is what needs to happen for the kids. So at this point, what we really need from Iraq is a change in direction. And rather than prosecuting these kids and throwing them in jail, they need to ask UNICEF to step up and help them create the programs that will help reintegrate these kids. Do we need that from the central government in Iraq, or is part of the issue the Kurdistan government? It's both. So a lot of the children we interviewed were being held by the Kurdish regional authorities. The sentences are lighter there. But they're still experiencing torture. They're still being prosecuted as terrorists. And we ran into a unique problem where because you have these two different governments, a child can be arrested by the Kurds, 
serve a sentence, be released, go back home to his family in Baghdad-controlled territory, and be arrested again for the same crime. In fact, we interviewed one boy who had served almost a year in Kurdistan, had been home for only 10 days when he was picked up again and detained. And in total, he spent almost two years in prison. Is Iraq receptive to ideas about the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and these international norms that have happened elsewhere, or is that something that falls on deaf ears? Iraq has ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. It's the most widely ratified treaty in history. And it clearly says that children affected by armed conflict need help in their recovery and their reintegration. I think... I think they're so focused on prosecuting anyone linked to ISIS right now that they're not seeing much further in terms of what the impact is going to be on these children. They may think that it's enhancing their national security by locking these kids up. But in fact, what it's more likely to do is just foster additional grievances. And who knows what's going to happen once these kids are released. I'm talking with Joe Becker. She's advocacy director of the Children's Rights Division for Human Rights Watch. And we're talking about what's been happening with some of the children who were in ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Well, in other international instances, we also seeing that terrorist organizations and children are um, getting treated differently than they have in the past. Is this a one-time deal in Iraq uh, and Syria, or is this something that is larger? It's a larger issue. Since 9-11, the vast majority of countries around the world have adopted or amended their counterterrorism laws, and they've often expanded the scope. They've adopted very broad definitions of what terrorism is in ways that often affect kids. And in practice, their approach has changed, and many governments are very punitive when it comes to any activity that's linked with a so-called terrorist group. So we see very similar patterns in Somalia, for example, with children who have gotten involved with al-Shabaab, children who have gotten sentences of 20 years in prison, 25 years life imprisonment for you know some involvement as a teenager with this group. And we're also seeing it in Nigeria around Boko Haram. I'm planning to go there in June to interview children who have been detained for alleged association with Boko Haram. But what we know is that a lot of them are being locked up not because of anything that they did, but simply because of alleged activity by family members, their parents, an uncle, a brother. There's a lot of guilt by association in this area of work. I mean, West Africa has a lot of experience with this. If they wanted to, they could look at their neighbors and say, well, they all had experiences that were similarly horrifying and had children, child soldiers, and worked it out. Right. So, for example, you know, Sierra Leone had a horrific war. The Revolutionary United Front used some of the most horrific tactics that you can imagine, hacking off people's limbs, hacking off people's ears, their lips, you know, up there with many of the tactics that we see from Boko Haram or ISIS. But RUF was never labeled a terrorist group. And there were thousands of children who were involved in that conflict. But after the conflict was over, those children benefited from rehabilitation and reintegration programs. And so many of them now have gotten back into school. They have jobs. They're able to be part of society again instead of being forever marginalized. Is there enough space to detain all these child soldiers? I mean, it would seem like if you were the government, uh, there's only so much, many, many, many people you wanted to detain. 
Our estimate is that right now in Iraq, about 1,500 children are being detained. And that's across a variety of facilities. So some of them are in juvenile detention centers, which aren't too bad. But some of them are being held in adult prisons that are so overcrowded that there's not even room for everyone to lie down at night to sleep. Some of them are being held in makeshift centers. So it's definitely not a good situation for these kids. You know, it makes you wonder about child detention on the whole. It seems a lot more acceptable than it used to be. You know, here we are in the United States separating parents and detaining children. Uh, Everybody's doing it. It's really interesting that we're seeing some differing trends. So in the United States right now, the detention of children along the southern border you know, migrant children, asylum-seeking children, it's a huge issue. We have record numbers of children who have been detained in recent months and thousands of children who have been separated from their families. The Trump administration believes that that's appropriate. You know, we disagree. We would say that a child's migration status is never an excuse to lock them up, put them in cages. On the other hand, this country has been making some real progress on detention in the juvenile justice system. There's been a 50% drop over the last 20 years of the number of children who are being detained for alleged crimes. Mm. There are states like Kansas, for example, has dropped the rate of children being detained by over a third in recent years. And the difference is that many of these states have adopted a different approach where they're looking at what is a community-based intervention? Can we get this child hooked up with a social worker or you know, a family intervention program that's going to address the root causes of what got them into trouble as opposed to just just put them in detention and make them a better criminal. What about elsewhere in the world? Am I getting the wrong impression that there are other places that find it acceptable now to detain children? Oh, absolutely. You know, the treatment in Europe of refugee and asylum-seeking children, you know, coming from Africa, coming from the Middle East, coming from Afghanistan is is horrible. There are refugee camps that are camps in name only. They're really de facto detention centers where thousands of people are being kept. So with a perceived refugee crisis in the world, many countries are cracking down and seeing migration detention is much more acceptable. What's going to break the spell, do you think? Hmm. I hope that what will break it is recognition that other models exist that are cheaper, that are more effective, and much better for kids in the long run than locking them up. You know, there are countries, Malta, for example, has said they won't detain people for migration reasons or they won't detain children. There are other states like South Africa, for example, that made huge strides on juvenile detention in the criminal justice system. They cut their rates of detention by 90% in 10 years by taking a more community-based approach. I'm working right now with a UN project that's going to present a report to the General Assembly in October looking at deprivation of liberty and detention of children all across the globe. And one of the things we hope to do is highlight some of the good examples, the good practices, the countries like South Africa or the states like Kansas that have actually made progress or, you know, the countries where child soldiers actually get rehabilitation instead of prison to sort of say, this is not impossible. Other states have done it. This is how they did it. And you can do it, too. Joe Becker is Advocacy Director of the Children's Rights Division of Human Rights Watch. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's happening with children's rights around the world. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 
Coming up after the break, we'll hear about buckwheat, a cover crop that's good for your health and for the environment. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Earlier this year, the Worldwide Fund for Nature released a report called the Future 50 Foods Report. It details 50 foods that experts think we should eat to diversify crops, help our bodies, and heal the earth. One of those foods in the list was buckwheat. Worldview food and health contributor Monica Eng talks with a Chicago woman who fell in love with buckwheat in Australia. She's brought a popular Australian preparation to the States in hopes of making everyone feel a little better. Thanks, Jerome. Yep, it's true. Buckwheat is hot in Australia with the health-conscious crowd like surfers. But it's also one of these crops that can heal the soil in between other crops. It's called a cover crop. It naturally reduces weeds and brings beneficial phosphorus to the soil. So I was pretty excited to talk to Emily Griffith about her play to bring sprouted buckwheat to the U.S. And I started out by asking just what the heck sprouted buckwheat is. So sprouted buckwheat is actually the seed itself. Oftentimes buckwheat is eaten as a cooked cereal like kasha, kind of like a porridge, or you might see buckwheat in pancakes. But the way we're selling it as sprouted and dehydrated buckwheat seeds, it's um, just the seed itself with the shell taken off. And then we sprout it to activate all the nutrients in it rather than cooking it and then dehydrate it so it's in its crunchy form. Buckwheat's actually a fruit seed, so it's a grain-free alternative to all your grains. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and we're going to get into why someone would want to go grain-free. But first, I heard there's an interesting backstory to how you came into the business of being a food entrepreneur. That's not what you always were. I understand there's surfing in your background. Oh, well, you know, trying to be. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm from Chicago, so I have a lot of catching up to do with all the Californians and Aussies. But yeah, I actually uh, used to work in... Uh, marketing in Sydney, Australia. So that's where I was living, working there, surfing. I was just living my best life. And then, (laughs) yeah, so one day I was near the beach, I went to this new little smoothie cafe, and um, they're known for their acai bowls. The best acai is um, frozen fresh in a concentrated form. And then Ideally, not sugar added, but some places now will add sugar. But yeah, it's a super fruit, frozen, and then delivered all over the world. Uh, generally, it's from Brazil. And then it's blended into a bowl and then often topped with granola, 
coconut flakes, honey, some chia seeds. Like that's a way that people are starting to use all these superfood seeds mm-hmm. on top of bowls. So while I was having a beautiful acai bowl on the beach, I realized like this particular bowl. I've had a lot of acai bowls in my day. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this particular bowl had like this insane crunch to it. I love the texture and the taste of it. I was blown away by it. But on top of that, just the way I felt after eating it, like I was saying, a lot of acai places might add sugar to the acai, or there's a lot of sugar in the granola. But this one in particular didn't give me any like sugar high. I felt like I actually had a sustained energy. Um, like I'd actually eaten some protein and just generally felt really amazing after eating this bowl. So much so that I had to talk to the cafe owners. I go back to the cafe and I'm like, oh my gosh, like what was that? Why was it so good? And it turns out the secret ingredient here that was kind of giving me that amazing crunch and made me feel so amazing was sprouted buckwheat, which actually the Aussies call activated buckwheat, oh. but it means the same thing. Turns out that buckwheat, not only, yes, the sprouted buckwheat seeds have this wonderful texture, but they're really high in protein, high in fiber, low glycemic, which means um, slower energy release, low Mm -hmm. sugar. Won't give you a sugar spike. Yeah, so no sugar. And that kind of was nice balancing out with like all the fruit that's in the bowl. And they're also um, gluten free. Which turns out I'm like literally just finding out about a month ago that I should be gluten free. Uh, So it kind of makes sense why this was making me feel so amazing versus even maybe a healthy granola that wasn't gluten free and not feeling so great. So I just was blown away by the seeds, went back, you know, learned everything I could about sprouted buckwheat in Australia. Like you go to any grocery store and you can walk down the cereal granola aisle and over half of the cereals and granolas will be made with sprouted buckwheat in Mm. them or it might be the hero ingredient. There's buckwheat clusters, there's buckwheat granola, buckwheat cereals, buckwheat on its own in its like sprouted seed form. Um, You can get it in chocolate. Cafes use it in chocolate bars, on avocado toast. Wow. So it's just like this normal superfood there. I was blown away by it, a little disappointed in myself that I didn't already know about this. And I just thought I was late to the game, started using it in my everyday life. Uh, And when it came back time to move back to Chicago, I was kind of looking up, of course, back on the beach in Australia again. I was looking up on the American Google. Oh, I didn't know there was an Australian Google and American Google. You have to, yeah. If you're in a different country and you're trying to look up what the U.S. Google looks like, you have to go like us.google.com. Because, of course, if you Google activated buckwheat or buckwheat seeds in Australia, you're going to get a lot more uh, brands selling it within Australia, grocery stores that are selling it. A lot of Australian bloggers use it in recipes. I was like, us.google.com, and there's nothing. Um, And this is about what year? This was 2017. Okay. Yeah, so I was just shocked to find that. I mean, of course, we do have buckwheat. Uh, It's really common. Eastern European food. Right, right. People eat kasha. Yeah. Um, But no one's really using it in this format. Uh, So I guess just became my mission to bring sprouted buckwheat back to the U.S. and show other health-conscious consumers how, you know, this versatile superfood can be used to add a superfood crunch to anything. (laughs) All right. So this entrepreneur comes back to Chicago from Australia and launches Lil Bucks when? I launched it officially, actually, just over a year ago. 
So tell me, who is your ideal customer? Um, well, my ideal customer is anyone looking for kind of clean protein, adding a crunch to anything, but um, it generally does tend to be people in the 25 to 55 age range, which is a wide age range of people that are excited about this product. Uh, but anyone who's making their own salads, this is big. Anyone who's likes eating breakfast. <laughs> and there's so many people who hate it. Yeah. I was specifically thinking that it's gluten-free, and then when I finally Googled it, because I was like, what the heck is spread buckwheat? I mean, I'm a food writer. How do I know? I noticed paleos were really into it, too. Yeah, so actually, um, and especially in Australia, there's a lot of, there's a big paleo culture and just in general, um, a lot of like clean eating, low mm -hmm. sugar types of diets. So sprouted buckwheat's a really popular food in those categories. And buckwheat's a really great thing for paleo eaters. Because I, they don't eat normal grains. No. Yeah. But you can still eat something like this. Buckwheat's sometimes called a pseudo cereal because it's like a cereal and it has a consistency. You, you can use it like a cereal. You kind of get that grain-like sensation from mm -hmm. eating it, but it is not a grain. It is a fruit seed. Buckwheat is more closely related to rhubarb. Yeah, I was so surprised to hear yeah. that. And yeah, like rhubarb and strawberries. Wow. Then it is... And it's like a flowered, flowered plant. What are the different forms that people will see it in? Uh, well, you see it in the original uh, sprouted and dehydrated form, which is just original low buck sprouted buckwheat. And um, that's really great to use in your both savory and sweet dishes. This is what I was using when I lived in Australia. I just would buy a pound bag of sprouted buckwheat seeds and use it in my oatmeal, smoothie, salads, mm -hmm. make granola bars with it and just replace oats or whatever mm. with the buckwheat. And actually, Life Kitchen in Chicago is now using low bucks sprouted buckwheat on their salads. So nice. Which is really exciting. I have to say, you sent me some and I tried them and the cacao ones, they tasted almost like cocoa puffs to me. Yeah, and, that's uh, it. I was handing them out to um, my friends who sit around me and I said, try this. And then one said, oh, it's sort of like grape nuts. Another said, this is like Cocoa Puffs. But they have a wonderful crunch to them. And I haven't tried it. I eat salads every day at work and I hadn't tried them in salads yet. I got to try that. Yeah, it's actually been the Life Kitchen partnership's been really great because that's kind of putting it in the forefront of this is a very much, you know, in the breakfast category. But mm -hmm. sprouted buckwheat is so versatile, and it is really amazing in salads. But then, yeah, the other two flavors are more breakfast-focused, being cacao, so it's like the healthy cocoa puffs, yeah. slash softer grape nuts kind of thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that also is cacao, maca root powder, oh. and cinnamon. You get a nice little yeah, cinnamon in yeah. there. I grew up having, like, cinnamon toast crunch. Right. Yeah, like cinnamon toast just in general. So I really like having that for breakfast. And then the other flavor is matcha, which sometimes now I'm saying matcha vanilla because it does have a nice amount of vanilla in it to balance out the earthiness of the matcha. Yeah, I like that one too. Yeah, and that one's really wonderful on um, well, vanilla-flavored things. It goes really well with. Um, but even actually people put that on salads as well. Um, like if you're making, especially now that summer is coming up, you do a fruit salad with, like, strawberries in it and the matcha buckwheat because you're getting, like, a super subtle sweetness from them, mm -hmm. and it's really nice. Now, did you say that you're starting to do uh, buckwheat granola? Yeah, actually, and I brought some for you. Oh, well, let's do some on-mic chewing. Yeah. Oh, do we do? Yay. <laughs> this is uh, Cluster Bucks. 
Okay. Uh, oh, I see what you're doing there. Yeah, <laughs> a little edgy. Yeah. But yeah, chocolate adaptogenic buckwheat clusters. Okay, yeah, adaptogenic meaning they, like adaptogens? Yeah, adaptogens. So the adaptogen that I'm using in this particular, um, the first flavor to launch, I literally just launched this yesterday wow. on May 1st. So the first flavor I'm doing is chocolate reishi. So using the reishi mushroom powder, which is... Um, it is called the fungus of immortality. It's yeah. supposed to be a really big immune booster. Exactly. And yeah, originally it was used a lot, um, especially for cancer patients, because mm-hmm. it is really good for white blood cells. But then more and more studies are showing that uh, it goes beyond just healing those who are sick, but boosting those who, you know, it's just like a general maintenance and wellness. So every... And I'm making sure that every serving... Of like it's not just like oh I sprinkled a little bit of adaptogens yeah. in this granola like every serving you'll get a thousand milligrams of red reishi powder which is a serving of wow. or the recommended serving a gram of reishi. Well, um, here's what it sounds like when you chew it. If you don't like on mic chewing, you might want to turn down the volume now. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah. <laughs> And it tastes like, you know, like not too sweet brownies. Thanks. Yeah. And I'm really cognizant about keeping the sugar low. Mm-hmm. Selfishly, I made a product that I want. Mm-hmm. I went. I actually went back to Australia in February and was like, okay, we have the buckwheat seeds out. But like I said, there's so many uses for this. Buckwheat clusters are next. And I was like sampling all these different. I literally had to buy another suitcase while I was in <laughs> Australia just to bring back all of these buckwheat granolas and products that they had and so this cluster box is kind of the brainchild of all my favorite things I brought from all my favorite granolas in Australia so you're getting like coconut flakes pumpkin seeds wow um but yeah I'm really trying not to make it too sweet I Um, love that yeah although my kids say to me Mom, you think everything is too sweet. <laughs> I know, I, yeah. <laughs> I'll somewhere like, ooh, too sweet. I do get excited, though, because little kids particularly like the cacao little bucks. Yeah. I actually had, was sampling at a grocery store the other day, and the mm-hmm. kids like made their mom buy cacao oh, little nice. box. I was like, this is the future. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, the benefits of sprouting. I did a story years ago about how sprouting was really taking off. You know, even in Aldi, you can find sprouted bread. Talk to me about the basic benefits, like what happens when something is sprouted. Uh, so basically when something is sprouted, and this is why Australians say activated, you're activating more of the nutritional power in whatever it is you're sprouting. Buckwheat naturally has these enzyme inhibitors in the seed, mm-hmm. so it allows the seed itself to, for example, survive in like crazy weather conditions or something. But obviously, when we're eating it, we don't need it to survive. We want it to break down and absorb yeah. the nutrients. We don't need the seed to protect itself. So with buckwheat, it has and a lot of these grains, um, yeah, brown rice, wheat, yeah. yeah, they all need to be either cooked or sprouted in order to. To release that. Yeah, so then the nutrients are available to you. So the benefit of sprouting buckwheat over cooking is, first of all, when you cook buckwheat, you're either getting um, ground up and then baking it into some sort of baked good, Mm -hmm. which can be great. Or you're having kasha, the porridge, right? which if you don't like porridge, I don't know, yeah. then, you know, the buck stops there. <laughs> but um, Some people don't <laughs> like the texture of kasha, which can be sort of a little mushy sometimes. Yeah. So, mm. and that's just the way that it's been eaten for yeah. so many years and, uh, and I'm not knocking on it, Yeah. but in this way, sprouting it and then, and actually you can just sprout it and then put it in your salads as a like live seed. Yeah. 
And the way I'm doing it, sprouting it, and then dehydrate right after so that they are shelf-stable for at least a year. And they obviously have this, like, crunchy texture to them then. So it almost feels like you're eating the raw seed, but it's been activated. So nutrients are available to you, but now you can enjoy it in this, like, more versatile way. Tell me, where can people find them? So right now, the easiest way to find it is on the website, lovelilbucks.com. And then also on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. The cluster bucks are not on there yet, but they will be. And the store locators on the website, uh, you can find it in independent stores like Chicago Health Foods, Life Kitchen, Dill Pickle Co-op, Sugar Beet Co-op, Southport Grocery, Bellies, and Pilsen. So I'm trying to make sure I'm covering most of the neighborhoods. And more to come. Hustling. (laughs) All right. Emily, thanks so much for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you're enjoying Cluster Bus. That was Worldview food and health contributor Monica Eng talking about buck sprouted buckwheat, activated buckwheat. What do you call it? Uh, and we're learning a lot about it there from Emily Griffith, founder of Little Buck Sprouted Buckwheat. Tomorrow on Worldview, we will check in on the elections in India. They are ongoing. The results are May 23rd, but we are going to check in and talk about citizenship challenges and Hindu nationalism in India and the elections. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Don't forget, you're an important part of the show, our audience, our community. Join uh, the community on Facebook. Find the group Worldview, WBEZ Worldview Community, and meet your fellow listeners, discuss important topics. Share stories. WBEZ Worldview Community. Check it out on Facebook. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thank you to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 